housework is rarely the territory of popular space cowboy science fiction. And when housework is depicted, it's usually brushed off as work for androids or other specialized high-tech robots. See Rosie the Robot. Dishes, dishes, dishes. A robot's work is never done. See also Wally. 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 See also replicators as food production in Star Trek. T. O. Gray Hot. Now in 1984, the year, not the book, the United States issued a patent to Francis Gabe for the design of a self cleaning house. She designed the house to offer seniors and disabled people the opportunity to live independently. Now, the house, well, it couldn't tidy up or scrub dirty dishes. Instead, the system Gabe designed was meant to refresh an already tidy house. At the push of a few buttons, the house would spray a fine mist of cleaning product over its interior. Gabe also invented waterproof cases for bookshelves, furniture, and other household items that needed a bit of protection. Now, Gabe's patent wasn't mere speculation. Years before she filed for and received that patent, she built a prototype on her property in Oregon. Twice a year, she let the house do its thing. A small nod to a future with less housework. You're listening to Strange New Work, a special series from What Works that uses speculative fiction to consider how work can evolve for the better, both in the future and now. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Francis Gabe's invention, much like household labor-saving devices in The Jetsons and Back to the Future, typifies the way we think about the future of housework. And that is that the future looks strangely like the middle-class suburban present. Individual homes for small nuclear families who just happen to go about their days without worrying about vacuuming or doing laundry. Helen Hester and Nick Strinsick call this domestic realism. Domestic realism is the phenomenon that's turned the isolated individual home and its corresponding isolated individual labor into something, quote, so accepted and commonplace that it is almost impossible to imagine life being organized through any other form. Domestic realism isn't just a lack of imagination. It's an enduring and self-correcting system that serves to reinforce a particular configuration of values around hard work, busyness, individualism, self-reliance, and family structure. The suburban home, as an ideal of American upward mobility, serves to atomize communities so that collective care and shared resources become nearly impossible. We call this freedom. Freedom is living in a home you own, literally detached from the people around you. Freedom is having the stuff you want within those four walls. Freedom is a car or truck you can drive where you want, when you want. Freedom is the right to define yourself with your property. 
but it's a sorry sort of freedom when our homes, our stuff, and our vehicles, among many other trappings of middle-class life, severely limit how we spend our time and where we put our energy. Home life is inextricably connected to work life, and the promise or potential of a certain type of home life convinces us to accept a raw deal when it comes to our work lives. Our activity is funneled into a prescribed set of ideal purchases, careers, and family structures in a way that significantly reduces real free time. Living in a home you own is considerably more work than living in an apartment you rent. Both have downsides, to be sure, but one provides some economy of scale in terms of maintenance, and the other hoists it all on your shoulders. Post-work theorists call this the double unfreedom of wage labor. Not only is our waged time subject to our employer's whims, or for independent workers, the whims of the market. But our non-wage time is spent on domestic and reproductive labor as dictated by cultural norms. In their book, After Work, Hester and Srinsic consider how we could lessen the burden of domestic and reproductive labor without sacrificing the quality of care and social relations. previous installment of Strange New Work, I mentioned the Wayfarer series by Becky Chambers. That's the set of solar punk novels that starts with the long way to a small, angry planet. One of the species that Chambers imagines is the Aloan. The Aloans have a distinct reproductive challenge. Female Aloans only become fertile two or three times in their lifetimes. There is no predictable cycle no way of planning for a pregnancy. The Elawan culture developed social structures based on this biological reality. The Elawan established dedicated creches, that is, parenting and educational groups that raise up biologically unrelated children. In the second book of the series, A Closed and Common Orbit, we learn how the system works. Traditionally, explains Chambers, creches were comprised of three to five virile males or shans, but women and neutrals were included in the modern mix. Now, this setup allowed male or shan elowans to choose parent as a career. Parenting was considered a full-time job, continues Chambers, and not something to be undertaken alone. As a woman had no way to plan for it, and when she might become fertile, the idea of her abandoning her own profession to look after an unplanned child was unthinkable. The Elawans who do choose to become career parents go through rigorous education to become qualified. Explaining the process to the story's protagonist, an Elawan parent puts it like this. At the core, you've got to get university certification for parenting, just as you do for, say, being a doctor or an engineer. No offense to you and your species, but going into the business of creating life without any sort of formal prep is, well, it's baffling. But then I'm biased. The coursework includes child development, basic medical care, and interpersonal communication. The Elowan man adds that to attract mothers to their services and to benefit the kids in their care, 
Elon's on the parenting track also add in extra specializations. He says that he has specializations in massage, tutoring, and emotional counseling. Other parents in his crush specialize in arts and crafts, cooking, home repair, and gardening. As for the mothers, well, they call and visit from time to time, but it's the professional parents who do the child rearing and guide the creches. The career parent explains, Elawan mothers love their children as deeply as anyone does. That's why they entrust them to professionals who can give them the best upbringing possible. The way Chambers lays it all out seems so sensible, even as the system subverts the assumptions of anyone who grew up in a culture that reveres the nuclear family. And actually, the crush model is one that appears over and over again in speculative fiction. In China Mielville's embassy town, we see a similar social structure among humans. The children live in nurseries staffed by multiple shift parents of any gender. They refer to the kids they grow up with as shift siblings. The biological parents of any of the kids might visit from time to time, but it's the shift parents that the kids develop close relationships with. In Ada Palmer's Two Like the Lightning, Earth culture comes up with a similarly revolutionary system in the 22nd century. It grows out of a project that aims to find and perfect great minds. But when one of the researchers has an insight that contradicts her mentor's hypothesis, she declares, quote, Sir, you are wrong. It's not the numbers, not these rare psyches you're charting that stimulate great progress. It's groups. I've studied the same inventors, authors, leaders that you have, and the thing that most reliably produces many at once, the effect you've worked so hard to replicate, is when people abandon the nuclear family to live in a collective household, four to 20 friends, rearing children and ideas together in a haven of mutual discourse and play. We don't need to revolutionize the kindergartens. We need to revolutionize the family. So instead of continuing with the original project, she starts her own, forming bash houses in which children grow up with bash parents and bash sibs before choosing their own bash in adulthood. Similarly, Earth's governmental systems transform as well. The nation states dissolve and in their place, they develop a system of hives, A hive is a diffuse governmental system that you join when you become an adult, putting yourself in its jurisdiction and declaring alignment with its values. So neither the home unit nor the state unit is a matter of birth. Intentional choice reshapes the political landscape. These reimagined forms of family and home life may seem odd, But they're only odd in relation to the kind of family that's developed under American capitalism over the last century. In an interview with Ezra Klein, ethnographer Kristen Godsey, author of Everyday Utopia, put it this way. I think that idea of a heterosexual monogamous couple raising their own biological 
offspring through biparental care in a single-family home surrounded by their own private stuff is really a unique family form. And as you said, it's an aberration. We can look across the world and we can look trans-historically, cross-culturally and trans-historically, and what we can see is that human family forms show a remarkable amount of diversity depending on climactic, geographic, economic, political, social circumstances. One of the things that makes humans so incredibly adaptive is precisely our ability to sort of shift our mating practices and our child-rearing practices in order to better suit the environments that we find ourselves in. The dominance of the nuclear family structure in America is contingent on certain social, political, and economic circumstances. Those circumstances are changing. When I spoke with sociologist and political economist Maro Guillen about his book, The Perennials, he told me about some pretty staggering demographic shifts. We've been assuming for a long time that the ideal household should be what we call the nuclear family. So that's two parents and one or more kids, one dog, one refrigerator, one washing machine, one dog or cat, and one car, right? Yep. And uh, that used to be uh, 45% of American households in the 1970s. But today, believe it or not, it's down to less than 20%. So it's crazy, right? Because we have a lot of people now living alone. We have a lot of people living with somebody of the uh, same gender assigned at birth, right? Mm -hmm. So we have LGBTQ people. And uh, we have also single mothers, women who have decided to have uh, children on their own or they divorced and so on. And then we have the other interesting category is a multi-generational household, where we have two or three generations, two or more generations. And uh, that used to be less than 5% of the American population. But now we have, uh, depending on the survey, up to 15% of all Americans living in a multi-generational household. And it's not because they don't have money, because in fact, poverty rates among people who live in multi-generational households are lower than for the general American population. And the average, uh, the, the median income for multi-generational households in the United States uh, it's about $90,000, which is way above the average. Some people are doing this out of choice, not out of, you know, necessity. When more people live in a home, more people can help out. That's not to say it's an inevitability, of course, but the potential is there. Many tasks really do provide leverage. There might be more laundry, but you can probably fit more clothes in a single load. More food needs to be prepared at dinner time, but cooking for six isn't more work than cooking for three. It's, it's just more food. The lawn still needs to be mowed, but it's still just one lawn. The home still needs to be repaired, but there are often more earners to chip in. Pooling resources and labor in this way was once the norm. We've been living together far longer than we've been living apart. Things started to change, as they did with so many things, with the Industrial Revolution. Still, it took a couple of centuries to transform our social organization, turning work that was once done collectively into the purview of the housewife. Before the idealization of the nuclear family and the rise of compulsory education, families did domestic labor together and with the help of extended family and neighbors. Those who were more well-off employed domestic servants who did the work collectively, 
if not equitably, as Hester and Srinsik point out. At the turn of the 20th century, the domestic service industry was Britain's largest employer and employed 1.5 million people, 14% of the total workforce. But Hester and Srinsik explain that the rapid development of technology, along with a concerted effort to market modern conveniences, quote, facilitated and responding to the increasing individualization of this workload throughout the 19th century, placing it in the hands of the lone housewife. At the same time, children were going off to private and public schools and couldn't help out around the house. Men were, often for the very first time, leaving the home for waged work and assuming their roles as breadwinners. In the United States, this shift reached a fever pitch after World War II, as concerted efforts to build and populate suburbs became a core part of the American experiment, as well as a defense against accepting a multicultural society. The geography, political economy, technology, and labor opportunities at this time converged to create circumstances whereby the chores of daily life were no longer coordinated collective efforts, but the responsibility of a single unwaged worker. No amount of technology could make up for the fact that the housewife now bore the brunt of reproductive and domestic labor, alone and isolated from support. Over the last 80 years, of course, women entered the paid workforce in droves, and yes, some inroads were made toward gender parity in domestic labor. But the atomization of our efforts remains a stubborn sticking point. To actually reduce the burden of domestic and reproductive labor, we need to fundamentally change the work that needs to be done. In the third book of Becky Chambers' Wayfarer series, Record of a Spaceborn Few, Chambers imagines how the humans who fled Earth as part of the Exodus fleet now live. The shipbuilders devised a system whereby a family would live together in a home of six bedrooms plus a central common room. In the fleet, a family could be related by blood or other kinship, or they might be individual, unrelated adults living together. The family home is part of a six-home group called a hex. At the center of the hex is another common area. Six hexes make up a hub, like a neighborhood, and within that hub, there are shops and services necessary for daily living. Now, a hex isn't strictly communal, but much more communal than, say, the average apartment building today. Hexmates look after each other's children, take turns preparing meals, and generally look out for the shared welfare of the larger group. In the Exodus fleet, one of the most foundational ideas is that everybody has a home and nobody goes hungry. Hexes are part of the mutual care network that ensures the fleet can always keep that promise. So is the notion of work on a ship. An alien ethnographer documenting life on a fleet ship observes, A job is partly a matter of personal fulfillment, yes, but also, and perhaps chiefly, social fulfillment. When an exodent asks, what do you do? 
The real question is, what do you do for us? This attitude toward work of all kinds helps to acknowledge the ways care, maintenance, and sanitation exist in the same category as other forms of labor. Taking care of one another is a job, and there are jobs for taking care of one another. In a social ecosystem where everyone's needs are met as a matter of course, The focus of work can be on helping to meet everyone's needs rather than either trying to get ahead or scrounging around for enough to get by. The world Chambers builds in the Exodus fleet sounds a lot like the world Helen Hester and Nick Srinsic propose at the end of After Work. At the end of After Work, Hester and Srinsic propose three principles for establishing a world in which we can all flourish. Those principles are communal care, public luxury, and temporal sovereignty. I want to focus on public luxury as it relates to waged work, but I'll give you the 411 on communal care and temporal sovereignty before I do. Communal care pushes back on the idea that the nuclear family is the best environment for a child to grow up in or for adults to thrive in. Hester and Srinsic write, quote, The family is often idealized as a safe space, a harbor in a hostile world. But for millions of people, it is far from that. Their proposals for communal care aren't state-directed, nor do they rely on coercive top-down power. Instead, their idea of communal care relies on activating our innate impulse to take care of one another. And to do that, we need to remove the many policy barriers that stand in the way of organizing chosen families and household arrangements. For instance, zoning laws that prevent people unrelated by blood, marriage, or adoption from living together are quite common, making it impossible to live communally in many municipalities. And nearly ubiquitous zoning laws banning the development of multi-unit buildings are a big part of today's housing crisis. By expanding choice vis-a-vis the family and living situations, we can find new points of leverage around reproductive and domestic work, often improving the quality of care available at the same time. Now, for temporal sovereignty. A more free future must include the choice of how we spend our time. The welfare-to-work system notwithstanding, no one in the United States is being told by the state how they must spend their time. But the conditions the state supports through policy do, in effect. To be able to, quote-unquote, enjoy the most basic things like food and shelter— Most of us must work full-time. Because so many jobs don't pay a living wage to full-time workers, many people must work additional jobs to survive. By not intervening in the conditions of contemporary work and needs meeting, the state does indeed exercise a de facto mandate over how we spend our time. The principle of temporal sovereignty is broadly revolutionary. But even small policy changes, such as establishing a minimum living wage, 
creating less onerous standards for disability income, and guaranteeing housing would go a long way to giving people more control over their time. And that leads us to public luxury. I wanted to focus on this idea because it's so ubiquitous in speculative fiction. Obviously, there are huge subgenres of dystopia and off-the-rails pay-to-play societies. But there are also nonchalant displays of public luxury throughout the Star Trek universe, as well as in most of the stories I've mentioned in Strange New Work thus far. And even in the more dystopic stories, there is often a struggle for some component of public luxury at the center. But let me back up. What the hell is public luxury? Public luxury doesn't mean everyone lives in mansions, buys whatever stuff they want to buy, and enjoys first-class airfare to the far corners of the world. Instead, public luxury is a vision of a simpler private life with access to a wealth of resources we couldn't dream of affording on our own. Hester and Strinsic proposed that public luxury be imagined through the lens of quality rather than exclusivity. So instead of imagining luxury as a matter of the lifestyle that very few people can afford, we start to consider luxury a matter of the best everyone can have access to. Public luxury can look like caring for the environment and ensuring that every community has access to ample green space. It can look like accommodation for shared child rearing. Public luxury might include ample funding for the arts so that our public spaces are full of art unimpeded by commercial concerns. We could have libraries, not only for books, but for tools, bicycles, and 3D printers. We could build more public swimming pools, playgrounds, and activity centers. And we could focus on the quality of these accommodations so that the public option is no longer associated with the option of last resort. In Becky Chambers' Monk and Robot novellas, the character Dex is a tea monk whose job it is to travel from community to community, offering tea and comfort to those who need it. There is no cost for the service, not even a recommended donation. The economy Chambers imagines doesn't even have money. Dex rolls up in their instantly recognizable bicycle-powered tea wagon and then sets to work preparing a place for people to come and use their services. Here's how Chambers describes the next step. At last, Dex sat in their chair behind the larger table. They pulled their pocket computer from their baggy travel trousers and flicked the screen awake. It was a good computer, given to them on their 16th birthday, a customary coming-of-age gift. It had a cream-colored frame and a pleasingly crisp screen, and Dex had only needed to repair it five times in the years that it had traveled in their clothes. A reliable device, built to last a lifetime, as all computers were. Dex tapped the icon, shaped like a handshake, and the computer beeped cheerily, letting them know the message had been sent. That was Dex's cue to sit back and wait. Every person in Inkthorn who had previously told their own pocket computers they wanted to know when new wagons had arrived now knew exactly that. 
In comic synchrony, everyone in the crowd pulled out their computers within seconds of Dex's tap. Dex laughed, and the crowd laughed, and Dex waved them over. And so they worked through the line, filling mugs and listening carefully, and blending herbs on the fly when the situation called for it. Pleasant chatter naturally drifted along here and there, but most folks kept to themselves. Some read books on their computers, some slept, a few cried, which was normal. Their fellow tea drinkers offered shoulders for this. Dex provided handkerchiefs and refills as needed. That's public luxury. It springs from asking, how can we make life better for each other? Rather than, how can I make my life and my family's lives better? Public luxury liberates our needs and desires from the constraints of profit-oriented market relations. It changes the calculus on how we spend our time and how we care for each other. Public luxury revolutionizes not only how we think about domestic and reproductive labor, but it revolutionizes how we think about all forms of labor. It also revolutionizes how we think about the family and how we form the groups we live with. In the 19th century, revolutionaries identified the family as an institution that reinforced class hierarchy and capitalist exploitation. Some called for abolishing the family. And to this day, it's one of the reactionary right's favorite ways to discount progressive ideas. Marx and Engels describe the bourgeois family as an insular project bent on reproducing the status quo through precise standards of property, education, and morality. Bourgeois families are tasked with producing the next generation of bourgeois families. And this echoes the contemporary phenomenon of concerted cultivation, so named by sociologist Annette LaRue. Concerted cultivation is a style of parenting that is no doubt quite familiar to many readers of this newsletter. It's the optimization of nap time, playtime, school time, and extracurricular time to create a product, I mean, a human being, fit for the marketplace. And as Anne Helen Peterson notes, millennials became the first generation to fully conceptualize themselves as walking college resumes. An idea, I can assure you, is alive and well with Gen Z, too. But not every family has the resources to concertedly cultivate children who can graduate without student loans, network their way into a high-paying first job, or wait out a tepid job market. Try as many might, many of the best and brightest from the tuition-borrowing class end up in retail, food service, and hospitality jobs. The promise of self-actualization and upward mobility slipping away with every meager paycheck. Or, as Marx and Engels put it, the bourgeois claptrap about the family and education, about the hallowed co-relation of parents and child, becomes all the more disgusting, the more by the action of modern industry, all the family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder and their children transformed into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor. Expanding the idea of family and transforming domestic labor through communal care, temporal sovereignty, and public luxury promises to revolutionize work of all kinds. These changes, of course, 
would threaten the very mechanisms of control that capital wields as the weapons of the status quo. How we live affects how we work, and how we work affects how we live. The home and the neighborhood, as well as the factory floor or office building, can be wellsprings of social innovation that change the calculus of what we do, what we get paid, and how we organize ourselves. We must see both how we live and how we work as a system that requires creative change if we're to imagine a world more conducive to human thriving and interconnectedness. Next week on Strange New Work, I examine how speculative fiction imagines we may be chosen for, or even made for, certain kinds of work in the future. Plus, I'll consider how the idea of purpose is used to support the status quo. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at whatworks.com. FYI, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.